Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are here, of course, for the next three hours and we are going to bring you the most common sense you've heard in a very, very long time, probably uh, since the common sense we gave you yesterday. We'll be talking a little bit about Prime Minister's questions, which comes up later on today at midday. Ross Kempster will be telling us not only what to expect from Theresa May, who seems to be relentlessly bringing us ever closer uh, to a, a deal uh, that we can all agree with on Brexit. Uh, we'll also be finding out from him why exactly so many cabinet ministers are all taking off to Davos, uh, which is, of course, the great Swiss uh, summit where uh, people are going to be quaffing very, very expensive champagne, eating very expensive oysters, eating very expensive smoked salmon, and talking to each other and rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous and people from other parts of the world. Donald Trump is not going, unfortunately. Uh, Macron is not going, unfortunately. But don't worry, Liam Fox will be there uh, straight from his visit to Hollywood, uh, where he went to the Golden Globes surprise nominations for all the British actors and actresses uh, who did rather well out there. Coming up in this hour, though, we're not going to be talking about politics. We're not going to be talking about anything as boring as that. We're going to be talking about something which is far more important. And in fact, it's all about the internet. We're going to be finding out from Emma Hardy at the Internet Watch Foundation precisely why there is so much child porn out there and why we can't do anything to stop it being distributed. They have shut down more than 100,000 pages in the last year alone, many of them coming from Holland, as you heard from Rachel Jewell there uh, at the start of the show in the news. And we're going to find out from Emma precisely what the dark web is all about, how on earth this kind of behaviour can be allowed to go on, and what is wrong with the authorities who can't seem to stop paedophiles from preying on the young people of this country. We'll also be finding out why it is uh, that Heathrow had to shut down uh, last night because one of its de-icing machines wasn't working terribly well, why the trains are running late this morning despite the fact that there's hardly any snow at all and why we are so useless in this country with dealing with cold weather when it's not even that cold. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, can you imagine a situation where you go to work as a police officer, uh, you risk your life, uh, you probably might face some danger, no matter what time of the day or night you actually have to go to work. There'll be idiots who want to do you harm. Uh, There'll be people who may want to uh, assault you in some way, shape or form. Uh, You are involved in what is known as frontline policing. You then uh, pick up your uh, iPhone, uh, you log on to Instagram, uh, where you go quite often to just see what your family members are doing, uh, and you see an advert for your uh, police force basically saying... 
Don't worry about starting at the bottom. You can come in in the middle. You can come in as a graduate. You can come in as a qualified police officer and you won't have to do any of the nasty, horrible sort of gut-wrenching work. You can actually just be treated uh, like some kind of middle management guru. That's hardly the way to recruit new police officers, is it? 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to Chris Hobbs, uh, former Met police officer himself and a detective. Chris, a very good afternoon to you. Yeah, hi, Mike. Yeah, I'm told that uh, the police have already apologised for the sort of insensitive nature of this particular recruitment ad, but it's a pretty stupid idea, isn't it, all round? Yeah, I mean, it must be in fairness to the Met. They Somebody actually flicked the switch and put this on the Met's Instagram um, where where it was spotted. But in, yeah. in actual fact, it originates from the College of Policing. They're the ones that sort of put it out generally. The oh, Met yeah. just picked it up. So right. it's the College of Policing, and they're the ones basically behind these schemes about bringing people in um, at a high level without having to go through the... Uh, the rough stuff, as it were, of being a PC. It's very controversial, and you'd have to say, although the College of Policing have, in fairness, apologised, um, their top man, Mike Cunningham, has issued a, a, a formal, forthright apology. Yeah. But it really sort of demonstrates the attitude, really, of the College of Policing and some towards those on the front line. And, and this business of, of throwing people in, uh, inspector, superintendent level, direct entry, and, and also in future, Mike, all police recruits will have to be graduates or go through some sort of crappy, excuse the phrase, no. um, apprenticeship. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, well, apprenticeship's one thing, but I mean, the idea that they now seem to have adopted that, you know, somehow you're a broader individual because you've got a degree and therefore you'll be better at problem solving is a complete fallacy and a complete myth. And, you know, this is the trouble with this country. You can't do anything now without a degree, but people have got degrees in absolutely nothing. Well, that's right. And I think generally now the trend is away, isn't it, from people that need degrees to get on in life. There seems to be a move away, partly down to the fact, as you rightly say, that degrees are now sort of ten a penny and you can get a degree in almost anything without having to do an awful lot of work. So it's all pretty ridiculous. And yet the College of Policing will not budge from this, despite um, huge criticism and, and the fact that really they are intellectually, as it were, consider themselves superior mm. and are detached from what is going on on the front line. That's not to say, Mike, that there are not issues with police leadership, because I'm sure you realise and certainly cops and ex-cops realise there is a problem because you get some absolutely stunningly brilliant police leaders yeah. and you get some bloody awful ones. Well, to be quite again, I'd like to see, as you would want to see in most businesses, uh, somebody leading who's actually done the job. I mean, you don't necessarily yeah. need somebody who's good at management. You know, I was I despair when I see that, you know, I mean, there's a great case actually recently uh, at the Daily Mirror, uh, a Mirror Group newspapers, where they hired a bloke who used to run, a, uh, you know, a, a glasses company to run the media business and you go well he might be a good um, executive but he knows absolutely nothing about newspapers why have you put him in charge of them and then so it has been proven <laughs> well that's right and i think you know looking back at my police career yeah and i, I stayed a detective sergeant and most of the time you know it was great i had a brilliant career but you've got two sorts of senior officers you've got the best ones to be quite honest were the ones who still basically saw themselves as police constables at heart yeah they could be a chief superintendent but first and foremost they were coppers and they were the best bosses the mm. ones who were the worst tended to be those who, who now think they're some sort of as you say executive smarter yeah. than everyone else superior and some of them quite right. frankly were arrogant bullies right um, what about but, your own? Per- I mean, you don't wish to. If you don't wish to answer this, by all means, uh, refuse to. But what about your own sort of personal situation? Did you? Could you have stayed in and risen through the kind of managerial ranks, or did you choose not to do that? 
Well, I chose not to. I mean, I was I was top of my class at Hendon. Uh, my final probationers exam, I got ninety-eight and a half percent. Um, I was tipped for great things, but when I got um, promoted to sergeant, mm. and some of the things I did as sergeant, you know, involved, I was involved with football, heavily involved with the Asian community. Yeah. Last 10 years, yeah. I months uh, in total out in Jamaica. Right. So I had a brilliant career, and I'm so glad. That, you know, your, your phone line's just breaking up a little bit. I don't know whether you can do right. something to fix that. I'll, I'll, I'll hit it, Mike. Yeah, go on, that's better. <laughs> stay, stay where you are, don't move. <laughs> no, I had a great time, without a doubt, and I'm I'm glad I didn't move up through the ranks. I would have got a bigger pension had I done so, but uh, I had a, thirty of my thirty-two years were brilliant. Right, and is that the case with a lot of officers who just say, you know, I've I've got my retirement date, I'm more than happy to to, to move on and leave it to younger men or whatever it is. But I mean, guys like yourself, Chris, and others that we talk to on the radio here, former police officers. I mean, you've obviously got a wealth of experience, which could be very useful to any force or whatever they want to call it nowadays, you know, police service, um, you know, your experience is pretty invaluable. You'd think they'd want to hold, hold on to a bit of that. Well, that's right. I mean, I did 32 years, so I think my, my time was due. Yeah. But yes, I mean, you, you, you do get people now who are leaving dead on 30 and disturbingly, Mike, now there's loads and loads of officers leaving um, who haven't reached pensionable age. They've just had enough. And, and strangely enough, lots of them are going to become train drivers. Is that right? Absolutely. Well, it's a well-paid job, that, and probably slightly less uh, hazardous, I suppose. Well, it's a sense of responsibility, but yes, it is better paid and, and without the hassle and really the dangers that you get now. Oh. And without a doubt, frontline policing has changed since, since I was on the front line. It's, it's more dangerous, mm. um, difficult, um, demanding, stressful, and, and the frontline are suffering for it. That's why a lot of them are leaving, Mike, yeah. and it's terrible to see, but... No one seems really to be doing anything about it, unfortunately. I suppose what they would argue is that this is why they're trying different methods of recruitment. So they may be trying to go to a different pool, if you like, rather than going to the same old uh, uh, sort of, you know, wherever they used to get police officers from. Uh, they're maybe now trying to, to, to engage a different set of people or something just because there's so few wanting to work there. Well, I don't think it's working, to be quite honest. We're already getting sort of reports, and you know what it's like, you know, in the police with rumours. I'm sure it's the same in your business. Yeah. But there are reports now that a lot of these direct entry people are coming in, uh, spending some months and saying, well, oh, dear, <laughs> this really isn't for us, and uh, and leaving quite quickly. Yeah. So I'm not really sure that's the answer. Really, what I want to see in the false Mike, to be quite honest, are, that are smart kids. Uh, and I'm talking as a Londoner from inner city estates yeah. that know the streets, have kept their noses clean, kept out of trouble, um, do pretty well at school without sort of necessarily being top of the class and getting first class degrees. These are the people, the men and women or the boys and girls I'd love to see joining the police who've got some, some street now. Yeah. Uh, and, and it will really be an asset. But of course, making it degree only and you know, maybe run, running up a debt or, or going on an apprenticeship for £18,000 a year. Um, really isn't going to happen. No. You know, that, that there needs to be a sea change in attitude. And the College of Policing should be leading this. And they're not. All they're focused on is degrees and people who are bright academics. And, and frankly, it's, uh, it's, it's really not what we want to see from them. No. And is it, do you think, too far gone in the sort of politically correct area now where, where people are put off by the idea that, you know, they might be the wrong type of human? You know, it's like they're not looking for that many, you know, white, middle-aged, middle-class men. I think that is an issue, but also on the other side of the coin, to be quite honest, um, 
as I say, we would all like to see more black and ethnic minority recruits. But when you see some of the bile thrown out by some of these activists, um, I was involved in an exchange with one well-known individual uh-huh. who kept just basically referring to police as racist pigs. Yeah. That was all his communication was, you're racist pigs, you're racist pigs. Um, and we had one activist, you know, the business about strip searching yeah, yeah. that was in the news recently. Uh, and he was actually suggesting that the police were strip searching because they get some sort of sexual gratification mm. from Madness, strip yeah. searching. Yeah. So if you're, a, if you're a young black lad, say, off of one of these estates, a good young black lad who's kept his nose clean, who might be thinking of the police, and then you're going to see, well, if I do join, what sort of stick and abuse yeah. am I going to get from within my own community? Yeah, right. Uh, and, and that really is, you know, that's catastrophic, really. We, we really don't want to see... We want to see more black lads, Asian lads and in, in the police, and the ones that are here... Um, are doing an absolutely brilliant job, yeah. and of course, in in very difficult circumstances. And talking of what them. what you suggested there about maybe getting some kids from inner city areas, I mean, are they going into schools? The police, because funnily enough, I mean, my son was at a recruitment uh, uh, sort of fair the other day, um, and there wasn't any representation from the police at all, which I found quite surprising in a way, because you think that you know when you're talking to fifteen year olds at school, that's exactly the kind of uh, place you want to be, isn't it? Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there are schools liaison officers, <coughs> and every school, I think, now in London has one. But, of course, those liaison officers are stretched. Yeah. Um, they're dealing with gang problems within the schools. Each liaison officer has got more than one school. Um, yeah, this is outside of London, so it's not really focused on that. But I was just surprised there wasn't any representation at all. Well, absolutely, because, you know, I mean, some forces are recruiting now. Uh, and you would have thought, yes, there would have been more of an effort. But I suppose really forced recruiting departments like every other department, it's like the Mets murder squads, yeah. um, are being slimmed down simply because of the pressure and the cuts. Um, but, yeah, you're quite right. I think we'd really like to see much more effort yeah. in recruiting. But, you know, that's they're going to be subject to cuts as well, those departments, as you certainly don't want to see for recruiting. That's that we've just seen thrown out by the College of Policing. No, no, quite. Chris, thank you very much indeed. Chris Hobbs there, former Metropolitan Police Officer himself uh, and a detective. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. Matthew Wright coming up at one o'clock, of course. He'll be in just before that uh, to tell us what's coming up on his show. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk to Ross Kempstall about Prime Minister's questions. She's still answering questions about the European Union, about the Brexit withdrawal bill uh, and all manner of other things to do with uh, the vote coming up next week, of course. Uh, Let's go to the phones, though. Donna uh, is in Aylesbury, wants to talk about the police. Hello, Donna. Hi there. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, good. What do you want to say? Um, well, I felt the previous speaker sounded like he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder, to be perfectly frank, about taking in graduates. Um, my son is uh, currently applying to become uh, go into the police force following his degree. Right. And is a, a young lad, kept his nose clean at school, Londoner, uh, comes from a family where our background is having worked in the police. My father and my uncle were police officers in North London. Um, I don't see why he should be considered to be less capable than someone's come from a different ethnicity and uh, background just because they're streetwise. What's wrong with taking people on into the police mm. force who've gone and got a higher level of uh, education? 
No, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, Donna, but what I don't think is right is to give them immediately sort of a leg up on people who have worked within the system for a long, much longer time. Well, and what, what, what I'm against is, is bringing these people in at a higher level so that they're in charge of well, people. Well, that happens. That happens in all industries. Well, it does. Have, it does. But you know, normally, but, but, but surely, but I mean, if you, you've had many members of your family in the police force, the police force is a very specific business. It's not just any old business. You can't just bring somebody in who's yeah, run, but, who's run a kind of, you know, mail order company and say, now you're in charge of the police. Well, no, but crime is changing and maybe the way that we approach crime should also change. Um, the fact that, you know, I'm quite sure that this isn't a human resources intervention that's been uh, done just in isolation. I'm quite sure that some of these positions have also been um, advertised internally and those people that are on the ground force. I'm not, I'm not saying anything wrong about the, you know, the regular bobbies. Uh, but some people will only ever want to do that. They may not want to climb up no, the ladder. That's fine. That's fine. But what I'm saying is, is why not bring people in? I'm, I'm, I'm all for bringing people in from other, other areas. I'm all for bringing in graduates. I'm, all I'm saying is, is they should start where everybody else starts, shouldn't they? Well, I'm quite sure that they'll get some of that training when they get, you know, induced into the police force. But um, I don't see why why we can't be more creative in this instance. And uh, and I'm not just saying that because of my son. I'm mm. saying that, you know, that if we do what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always got. Yes, but I think in the same way, and you, he'll he'll know this, I'm sure. If you're put in charge of a police force or a police a section of the police, and you have never been a police officer, I don't think you'll have the respect of the police officers who uh, who are supposed to look up to you. Possibly, but you, know what I mean? you gain over time, and and it sounds like he's the previous speaker was talking about one of the people that he worked under, um, who probably wasn't recruited in this way, who he described as being arrogant and a bully. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily make any difference if people have no. gone through the ranks, does it? No, that's true. I mean, every uh, silver lining to every cloud is what I say, Donna. Thanks very much for calling. Let's talk to Mark, uh, who's in Bristol. Hello, Mark. Hello. How are you, Mike? Very well. Very well indeed. What would you like to say? Good. I'd like to just, before I say what I'm going to say about, you know, uh, industry in this mm. country, I think I know, the police got a, a very, very difficult job. I think it's best to learn from the, you know, the ground up. Yes. So they got experience and that keeps them safe. Because if you can't, if you don't have the grounds up experience, you don't really react correctly in certain quite dangerous situations. Yeah. And I think well, the police... Well, Im- imagine if you're in charge of, of, of a section of the police where, where you've never worked before and suddenly there's some kind of siege situation and you have to go and decide what yeah. to do. And if you've never been in that yeah. situation, you're not going to know what to do. Exactly. And I think that I think the fit that the police got a harder and harder job where we put more and more expectations on them to act perfectly in every situation. And I think the stress levels on them must be immense, to be perfectly honest, because if we don't back them, you know, and they put a foot wrong, they're suddenly they're in court. And we've got a lot of, of, of stress whereby people are good, the good people are going to say, I don't want this. Yeah isn't worth it and so if they're not learning from the ground up you know we're going to get even more blunders mm. do you see what i mean yes i anyway, absolutely absolutely agree with that yeah I, I once was going to go in the police and i spoke to a policeman and i said and he said to me this country will get the police force it deserves mm. and i thought that was a very um a very sort of telling comment anyway the reason i, I rang in is yeah. because I, I i think europe and our relationship with europe is is pretty, um, if you like, if you look at, I, I'm from Bristol, and I look at our uh, our country and what we're, the manufacturing base that we used to have in this country, which was planes, trains, cars, lorries, ships, 
Uh, we used to pull our own coal out the floor, out the ground. We used to have our own... Um, uh, there, there's lots of industries. Um, we've got Cadbury's, which has just gone out of the country. We've got lots of uh, manufacturing-based uh, things in the country. I mean, Dyson, that's slowly going away, but that is... That is a decision made by him. And you're right, it is a business decision because obviously uh, workforce, uh, cost of paying, you know, you know, workforce. And obviously uh, with the things in this country that we've lost, such as the uh, shipbuilding and the train yeah. building and that, right. if you look over into Europe, and especially Germany, who have a massive manufacturing base, massive compared to us, we're more service-based, I think over the years, and if you look at it, I'm sure everybody who's listening to me now will know of companies and businesses local to them that have gone and actually repositioned in, in Europe and in cheaper parts of the uh, you know, workforce areas. Yes. Well, Jaguar, Jaguar Land Rover just went to Slovakia, didn't they? Exactly. And it's a brick-by-brick brick dismantling of our, our what I would call um, our manufacturing base. And if you look at, like, um, not that I know a great deal about it, but if you look at sort of aerospace, you know, British, um, the aerospace, we make the planes, we make the wings, sorry, and other things are made in other parts of Europe, and it's all put together. And I think you, they're trying to get a co-dependency so that we cannot be independent. And so we're frightened to death. And we're, we're, our, our makeup is that we're not able... To sort of have that confidence to be an independent, we don't we don't pull much, we don't make much steel anymore, which no. is one of the fun, fundamental things. And I think if we make a sort of, I think we make a years, specialist form of steel, which is quite expensive. But that, but that you're quite right, it's not a mass marketed steel, is it? Well, it just it just we get disenfranchised mm. and we get codependency, and then we we end up thinking, oh, we must be aligned with Europe because we can't cope on our own and we can't manage it on our own because of of of, of the things we've lost. All right, I mean. You could say that China was one of the reasons we've lost the shipbuilding, which mm. up on the Tyne and all these. But, you know, when you actually look around Europe and, in the, in the, like, the P&O are actually having ships made in, I think, Italy yeah. and in Germany. Right. They're still making stuff. We're not making the stuff. I think we're, a couple of our ships, you know, our naval ships, we're, we're, you know, we even get quotes from Germany and stuff like that. And there's a lot of things that uh, are slowly brick by brick mm. being dismantled and uh, I think we don't even realise it, and that's putting people on the door, on the door as well. And we've got to find other ways because we're a service-based country primarily now. And I think that you know we have to look at service-based uh, industries are very mobile. Whereby if you are uh, making, I mean, all right, we've had some good um, in, influxes with uh, Honda and I think Toyota and that who've come into the country because we've got a fantastic workplace. Uh, workforce and we've got intelligent people but you know we're, we're actually successful despite people trying to dismantle mm. and actually take us apart yes That's i agree mark you're absolutely right thanks very much indeed for your call spring is that you warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles meet the super light collection the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors they've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet the lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. 
So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's go and talk to a very sensible young man uh, by the name of Simon Calder, travel editor for The Independent, who I'm sure is going to be very, very nice about Heathrow Airport and is going to tell me, oh, it's not their fault that they've only got two de-icing machines and one of them broke down. Simon, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Yes, it was absolutely horrible last <laughs> night. Um, I saw uh, 34 British Airways flights being cancelled. Whenever there's problems at right. Heathrow, it's always British Airways that uh, uh, that suffers most, or rather their passengers mm. who suffer most. Um, so lots of... Uh, domestic flights. Why were they cancelling flights, though? Uh, because if uh, th- there is simply no scope, because as we're always being told, he- if Heathrow is effectively full, yeah. um, then all you can do when uh, problems build up, when you've got delays, is you just go through the schedules. And I've, I've been uh, at the wrong end of this uh, myself. Yeah, they suddenly say, OK, well, uh, we're going to cancel the Milan flight yeah. um, because we've got lots of flights to Milan, so we can try and put people on that. But they're just trying to create some space so that they can get the operation back uh, to normal, which it seems to be so far today. Um, it was pretty horrible last night. Lots and lots of delays. And there will be effectively knock-on delays uh, this morning. Lots of long-haul flights were two hours late. Uh, places like Cape Town, Kuala Lumpur, Boston, Dubai, New York. They were heavily delayed going out and therefore they could be heavily delayed coming back in. But it's not just us, Mike. Um, Amsterdam had uh, lots of problems. Paris, Charles de Gaulle was a right old mess. And, and did they have any more snow than we had? Because the pictures I saw from Heathrow <laughs> yesterday showed absolutely no snow at all. Oh, no, but it's all its all just safety. It's de-icing. I don't know if you were out and about yesterday evening, but it was pretty Baltic. And I, so I have to tell you, I was not out and about yesterday evening. Oh. I'll tell you why. Uh, I was waiting in my house in London mm. for seven hours for a delivery of a washing machine, which never came. Oh, no. So I'm afraid. Was it being flown in? They're now, pl- they're now claiming it was the weather that stopped them getting it to me. Ah. And I'm going, hello, what is going on with you people? I mean, I used to live in New York City. I used to live in Connecticut. I used to live in Washington, D.C. Yes. I remember very often 18 inches of snow falling in the, in, the, in the space of about two hours. And I remember being flown out of Newark Airport <laughs> on a flight with, uh, with the snowblower next to the plane, literally putting the snow into this great big sort of mashing, melting pot where the snow was just melting the snow literally as it was falling. Brilliant. Uh, that, that's what we need. Yeah. Or rather, is it what we well, need? Well, no, because we don't have any. The point is, is we shut everything down because we don't have a proper de-icing mechanism to fix the problems. Because as I was saying to Rachel Jill, our newsreader earlier, in America, they, uh, they de-ice the plane just before it takes off, right? Yes. In this country, they de-ice the plane at the gate. Then they wait for it to, to taxi out to the runway where it needs to then come back and be de-iced again. Uh, there have been some logistical errors, I must admit. You're so admit. good at this. You uh, see but, what I mean? But, logistical is, errors. If, if, you're, if you're talking about places like Connecticut and, and the New York area, I mean, frankly, in winter, they are unfit for human habitation. Well, yeah, they, but except and, people and live there and they don't die and they, and they still manage to oh, fly to the Caribbean. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. And look, just before Christmas, I was in Volgograd, formerly Stalingrad. Oh, yeah. And I, uh, it was an absolute blizzard, a snowstorm. Mm. No idea how the driver got me to the airport. And I was supposed to be flying down to Sochi on the Black Sea. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, that's obviously never going to take off. Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> dragging us through the blizzard. Um, yeah. And uh, it, we all survived. But the thing is, the UK doesn't tend to have extreme weather. Therefore, we don't invest the yeah, many but millions. but that's what that I'm needed. saying. But it's not. I mean, last night, you might say it was a bit nippy. It wasn't extreme weather. There wasn't any yeah. snow in most parts of London. <laughs> yes. Right? Oh, oh, agreed, yeah. Um, it was uh, it, it was pretty shocking and there will be an inquest because if you're going to cancel 34 flights, um, that means... Also, that, if uh, one of them has Kay Burley waiting to get on it, yeah. you're going to be in a bad place. And she was tweeting last night. And the most amazing thing, and she actually ended up saying, shame on you, Heathrow Airport. They kept tweeting her saying, everything's fine. You know, everything yes. is all right. You're wrong to say that the de-icing machines aren't working. They're working now. Uh, you're wrong to say that flights are being cancelled. People are being delayed because they're not. You know, they've just kept denying it. Uh, yes, that's, which is never good if, if, no. if you're actually there and you've got social media and you can you can right. say, uh, we've been sitting on this, uh, one chap got in touch with me, uh, so, so we were you know, 40 minutes late from the gate. We're now sitting around waiting to be de-iced mm. and um, it's all, all a, a muddle. But... Um, the, the thing is, most of the time Heathrow works and Gatwick works and even Belfast International where we had lots of cancellations. The runway was closed by snow and that had knock-on effects. So some people were getting to uh, Edinburgh yeah. at one o'clock in the morning because right. their flight had been coming in from Belfast. So right. it, was, it was pretty messy. And presumably there'll be a knock-on effect today as well, won't there? Uh, there? There will be some effects. I mean, most people have got where they need to be. Uh, the big issue is going to be um, flights coming back into London, which were held up yesterday, um, there, there may well be that they've got knock-on delays, which means that me, people miss connections, and it all continues getting a little bit uh, uh, muddy. Mm. But um, uh, yeah, we we kind of it it was a Tuesday in mid-January, and that's about as benign as it gets. <laughs> if you're going to be cancelling flights, it's not like what we saw at Gatwick due to the drone yes. before Christmas, where it was the week before Christmas absolutely the busiest week yeah. of the winter and if you're going to close the runway for 33 hours then that's going to um, cause quite a lot yes, of upset. it really is. Now finally, before I let you go Simon, I must ask you where are you off to next? Because you're always going somewhere exotic oh, or, or sometimes not so exotic. Where are you going? Oh no, well, look, I'm going to the part of the world you used to be so yeah. I'm going into Boston to Connecticut to Very New nice. York um, but then I might just nip down to Florida where it's um, technically a little bit warmer well, than out in Heathrow I can right tell now. you, yeah, I can tell you it's about minus 15 degrees centigrade <laughs> in uh, Connecticut at the yes. moment so you know, make sure you take a scarf I'll give it a week but the fares <laughs> have been absolutely ridiculous I've paid yeah. uh, what £304 return out on Delta back nice. on um, on Virgin Atlantic it's ridiculous so that is good if, 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 as long as you haven't got a proper job or proper commitments you've got to do it's fantastic spend your life on holiday pretending <laughs> to work that's what I do well listen if it's a great uh, a great gig if you can get it Simon Calder thank you very much indeed travel editor for The Independent uh, saying you know Heathrow works most of the year round well yeah it does but that's not the point, is it? It should work all the year round. And unfortunately, we have this kind of apologist type uh, uh, scenario going on in this country where everybody goes, oh, just have a bit of patience. Just put up with it. Really? I mean, I had to wait seven hours inside my apartment yesterday for something that never arrived, even though I was assured that it was several times assured that it was definitely coming. Absolute shambles. I haven't decided yet whether to completely rip uh, the uh, backside out of the courier company. Uh, I'm still in conversations with them, but it may well have to come to that uh, because it was a disgrace. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
We're going to talk to Amelia Womack, deputy leader of the Green Party, because Poundland, uh, which is incredibly good at getting its name out there and marketing itself without actually having to pay any money, uh, viz getting publicity on this radio station, has come up with a rather stupid idea uh, in which you can give your loved one on Valentine's Day a present of nothing, a gift of nothing. Uh, It is literally a package which is made up of all sorts of plastic packaging and there's nothing inside it. You know, if somebody gave you that as a Valentine's gift, you'd probably slap them around uh, and then uh, shortly thereafter dump them, wouldn't you? Uh, Of course, when I say slapping around, uh, that is in no way meant to encourage people to get involved in domestic violence. These are the kinds of things you have to say these days to make sure that people don't take you too seriously. However, uh, the the idea that this is somehow upset environmentalists is kind of daft, isn't it? Amelia, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, people getting worked up about this gift of nothing wrapped in plastic is probably going a little too far, isn't it? Well, fundamentally, the fact that it's going to take hundreds of years to break down in our environment, and it's just uh, a present that's going to go straight from the shelf and into the bin. Mm. I mean, I think there are so many more. If people go, oh, we don't want, I don't want anything for Valentine's Day, they probably were hoping for something a little bit more imaginative than going and wasting your money on something that's going Very to end up in the bin. Very true. Um, but surely nobody's going to be really stupid enough to buy it, are they? Well, I think it's down to. I think that people want to be making sure that there are people that are able to take, make responsible options, and that's business and governments making decisions that means that there's just not excess plastic out there. Even if they don't sell it, where's it going to end up? It's being produced. It's going to end up mm. in waste. And we've seen that plastic has ended up in our in in our ecosystems. We've seen it end up in 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 um, our environment. We've seen how much plastic waste gets into our oceans. Now that it's being produced, it's still going to exist. And let's face it, that kind of plastic isn't easily recycled. No, indeed. But there's many other plastic uh, packaging which I suppose is is going to be bought in much bigger numbers, which is probably much more worthy uh, of your attention because you do risk sounding like you have lost your sense of humour altogether, Amelia. I mean, I don't think it's a, a loss of a sense of humour for, a, a, as you said, a kind of fake laugh if someone gives you the least imaginative <laughs> thing you could possibly imagine. And, you know, if I was going to go to Poundland and pick something up for a, and someone picked me up for something for a pound, I'd much rather they pick me up one of those scratch cards. <laughs> There'd be a bit more well, exactly. and hope in it. Exactly. No, but do you know what I mean? I mean, I, and you listen, your, your sentiments are entirely correct and I wouldn't disagree with anything you said. It's just that when people make a noise about this kind of thing, those people who uh, would see kind of the, you know, the Green Brigade as, as as, as a sort of sad, lonely, sort of whinging brigade uh, would, would, would be sort of uh, justified in thinking so, you think? Well, I think that people's uh, understanding about the issues of plastic pollution is completely turning. And I think that beyond Definitely. sad and whinging, I think that, that people truly understand the importance of actually making sure that we don't have these unnecessary plastics in our society. And I think that people realise there are there are difficult points of where we've got to decide where we, we have plastics or not. And this isn't a difficult choice. This ah. is just an absolutely ridiculous product. Do you know what you could do? Be- Since you are the Green Party, you could actually go to all the Poundlands in the country, buy all these uh, packages up and just put them somewhere so that they don't end up in the uh, in the food chain or, and or in waste. You could just put them in a, in a cupboard or something. I mean... That's it's a great like, idea, isn't it? It sounds like a waste of energy and a waste of money and, uh, and a waste of plastic all at the same well, no, time. No, but it stops it from getting into the system, though. I think that Poundland need to take responsibility of what, they, what they're going to create in the system. And we're seeing retailers across the country stepping up and trying to make a difference. And then it kind of is a bit of a blow to them when uh, Poundland just put out this unnecessary idea that 
um, quite frankly. I, I just can't, like, like you said at the beginning, I can't imagine any relationship no. made any stronger by, I suppose by you, this kind you of might, thing. You might argue that they've been very smart and they've just stuck two fingers up to the green lobby, knowing that they'd get a bit of publicity out of it and, and it hasn't cost them any money. And so people might think, oh, I'll go to Poundland and buy my, buy my uh, Valentine a gift. Not that one, but maybe something else. I'd, I think that in terms of press attention, that this is just a negative point where it looks like Poundland is stuck in the past, trying to sell, flog things that have been that are pointless for the environment, pointless for people, probably being transported across the world to be put on their shelves. And I think it makes them look like a retailer of the past rather than adapting to mm. make sure that they're a retailer of the future. All right. So you're going to encourage a boycott of Poundland then? No, that's not going to encourage a boycott, but I think that if you're going to put this kind of item out there, then businesses really need to consider um, what they're doing. I think we've seen people put forward, we've seen businesses put forward green agenda, green policy, and Poundland are just as capable of doing that. And so more than boycotting them, I'd like to encourage them to be thinking about how they future-proof their company without... Um, creating environmental problems and just selling really quite ridiculous things that, um, as, I, as I keep saying, just end up straight in the I have to bin. say, there's a lot of rubbish in Poundland. I mean, I don't go there that often, but there is an awful lot of rubbish in there, and that's what they do. I mean, they sell rubbish. And they also sell some quite fundamental things that people need at a cheaper price, and I... Yeah, uh, you know, so I, I mean, they are used by an awful lot of people, aren't they? Definitely gone in there for things like trust-based and, and those kind of things. But, like, I mean, they, they've got their role in our economy, but selling selling rubbish, literal rubbish, <laughs> uh, shouldn't be it. OK. Amelia, thank you very much indeed. Amelia Momack, deputy leader of the Green Party. Uh, I'm not going to accuse Amelia of losing her sense of humour. She's obviously got a sense of humour. Uh, but Poundland do sell a lot of rubbish, and I think they'd be more than open and happy to admit that. Not a problem. That's why it only costs a pound, for heaven's sake. You know, it's Poundland. Buy something which is rubbish for a pound. It's great. It's a fantastic selling point, and that's why loads of people go there. Don't you think? 0344 499 1000. I've got a great one here uh, from someone uh, called Man, who says, I reckon I'll get a pound land for Valentine's Day. It's been years since the missus slapped me around. Whoop, whoop. This is Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk Radio. We are here until one o'clock when Matthew Wright will be along uh, with Kevin O'Sullivan. They'll be here shortly to tell us what is coming up uh, on their show. Uh, That slightly pugilistic intro there uh, comes uh, courtesy of PMQs because it is Wednesday. uh, It is 12.35. Ross Kempsell, our political editor, is here. Uh, He's been watching the the punch-up in Parliament, uh, if uh, that's what we wish to call it. But uh, it's been quite civilised so far from what I can see. Uh, Ross, tell us what's been happening. Slightly livelier punch-up than probably we expected today, Mm. Mike, and that's because Jeremy Corbyn decided to stick to one line and one line alone, really, throughout his uh, questions. They all revolved around whether the Prime Minister would agree to rule out no deal Mm. and rule out extending Article 50. Now, um, Mr Corbyn repeatedly pushed the PM, saying, you know, can you make your position clear? Are you going to rule out no deal? Mr Corbyn always lists all the things that he thinks are wrong with no deal. He always says it's going to damage jobs, uh, it's going to prevent Labour's jobs first Brexit, as they like to put it, uh, and 
frankly, Mike, really interesting line. The mm. Prime Minister was not able to give a solid answer. She wasn't able to rule out taking no deal or off the table. Likewise, on a customs union, that is the really big element as well that came out of PMQs. Mr Corbyn pushed and pushed and pushed the Prime Minister. Will you rule out a permanent customs union, which is the phrase that Labour are now using? Mm. Prime Minister very interestingly refused to do so in the kind of most roundabout political language. Let's mm. have a look at what she said on a customs union. Can the Prime Minister explain why is she ruling out a customs union as a solution to the crisis? She could, for once, actually answer the question. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps I can try to help the right honourable gentleman here. Because I think, I think when... When many people talk about a customs union, what they want to ensure is that businesses can export to the EU without facing tariffs, quotas or rules of origin checks. Now, I agree. And the deal we negotiated delivers just that. Interesting, yeah. So, I mean, she's being sort of pushed and pulled, isn't she, in this situation? But I, as I've said earlier this week, I think she's kind of, she's trying to manage the whole situation, really, isn't she? She is, and this is one of the only um, possibilities or proposals in front of the House of Commons which anybody really thinks has got the chance of commanding a majority, mm. the idea of a permanent customs union, because you would be able to get a deal through on that with Labour votes. All the opposition parties mm. would back it, probably, uh, although that's not certain, and a sizable number of Tory rebels would back it. Now, the Prime Minister being very, very interesting in her language there. She always points out these technical things about the customs union, tried to throw Mr Corbyn off by talking about the specifics. A little bit later on, she went into what's the common external tariff, trying mm. to quiz him, trying right. to get him to basically look as if Fall he doesn't down, know what he's talking yeah. about. Right. But the reality is, is that all of that is a distraction from the Prime Minister refusing to rule out this idea of remaining in the customs union. She did that last week at PMQs as well. And that's because people think that she's needing to keep her options open because uh, indicating, at least, that a permanent customs union might be an option... Mm. Uh, although she has ruled it out in the past, but changing her language on it is thought to kind of be an effort to bring round Labour MPs. Now, a, a slightly different development uh, at PMQs. Mr Corbyn made reference to a talk radio exclusive story, which we broke yesterday, about the number of cabinet ministers who are at the World yes, Economic I saw Forum. Yes, yeah. In fact, I retweeted it. I'm so impressed. Abs- absolutely. At the World Economic Forum in Davos. As it turns out, there are six members of Theresa May's cabinet out of 21 yeah. at that meeting. Now, usually the meeting is only attended by the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, right. and perhaps the International Trade Secretary. Mm. So easily double the number of ministers that usually attend. And I'm told already by people who are out there that actually it's not a very important Davos because Trump isn't there and Macron is not there. Uh, Angela Merkel, I think, is the only sort of serious leader that's there at all from Europe. So it's not really important to be there anyway. And the Prime Minister's not there because she said that she would stay in the UK to focus on Brexit. Now, I've been told by Whitehall sources that a couple of cabinet ministers have jumped on this, have jumped into this, uh, realising that the vacuum that's been created by the PM not going has allowed them to maybe push themselves a little bit more in the Davos world than they usually would have done. Each of those cabinet ministers takes a member of staff with them, at least one. We approached all government departments yesterday for clarification on costs and none were able to provide an estimate of how much that trip costs. Uh, Here's what Mr Corbyn had to say about it at the dispatch box. While a third of her government are at the billionaire's jamboree in Davos, she says she's listening, but rules out changes on the two issues where there might be a majority, against no deal and for a customs union, part of Labour's sensible Brexit alternative. 
Well, there's an interesting phrase, a Labour's sensible Brexit alternative. It sounds good, but what is it, though? Sounds great. Uh, the reality <laughs> is is that Mr Corbyn has repeatedly says he's going to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. So if right. you look at Labour's amendment, which is what everything comes down now to on Monday, mm. so it's Amendment A on the order paper for Monday, it says that Mr Corbyn would seek to reopen negotiations on the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration. Now, the first barrier to that is that the European Union have consistently said that that's not going to happen. So you would have to uh, get over that. It would require the EU 27 countries to... Uh, um, essentially sit down and say, OK, we are willing to reopen the deal, which we've completely consistently said we're not going to. Mr Corbyn then wants to uh, create a new customs union, which is what he's trying to push the prime minister on because mm. he believes that's essential for jobs. He also says uh, that he would like to create a new single market relationship. Now, that's quite hazy. Yeah. What does that mean? Not sure. Right. This is getting very close to what a lot of people who uh, back Brexit think isn't Brexit at all. Mm. It's the softest, in some views, of soft Brexit. Yeah. And he's also uh, really pushing hard um, what's called dynamic equivalence in political terminology. He wants EU regulations about workers' rights to be transferred, basically cut and pasted into UK yeah. law after Brexit. And the reason for that is because he is worried, uh, he says, that there is going to be a gap opening up between workers' rights in the European mm. Union and in the UK after we leave in March. Right, OK. And interestingly enough, I noticed the other day that Caroline Flint uh, tweeted something interesting. She said MPs can keep on asking for no deal to be taken off the table, but the public don't trust those who ask this to deliver Brexit. We'd have more trust and support if we also said take Remain off the table as well. So, I mean, there's also that kind of side of the Labour Party who are saying, you know, we've already voted to leave, so let's not worry about the renegotiation of how we leave. Let's just leave. The Labour Party are engulfed in a big split yeah. uh, uh, in the last 24 hours, and it all revolves around kind of a schism in the People's Vote campaign. Which amendments Labour MPs want to back uh, about a second referendum and which they don't? Uh, Yvette Cooper's uh, amendment, which opens the way to a bill, uh, essentially to block no deal, which some people think could be a way forward to a second referendum has caused huge controversy. Mm. There haven't been as many Labour MPs coming out in support of a second referendum as the campaign first claimed. There have been claims uh, in the last 24 to 48 hours that that campaign internally is really struggling and falling apart with infighting uh, over various elements of direction and yes. the way that events have been handled and such like. So these are big issues for the campaign that is trying to push for a second referendum. The reality is, is that actually on the order paper on Monday, there's really not a majority, it looks like, in the House of Commons for very much of those ideas at all. The closest you get is the Yvette Cooper mm. Amendment, uh, which would uh, create an uh, extension of Article 50 and uh, block the government uh, from no deal, bringing forward this time for a, for a no deal blocking bill. Uh, and the effect of that essentially would be to stagger the process considerably yeah. uh, from the March deadline. OK. And as far as next week's vote is concerned, it's a bit early probably to, to predict, but what are you hearing in terms of numbers? And if it does result in another loss for Theresa May, which we expect it to, um, you know, when does she come back with yet another vote? In a way, it's already a loss for Theresa May because she didn't want to be in the position of having to consult Parliament, I think it's fair to say, on all of these various different options. And it's important to reiterate that Monday's vote is not a repeat of the meaningful vote. So it's not a vote on Theresa May's deal. It's a vote on the amendments, which have been put forward by lots of different MPs saying, this is the roadmap. Mm. This is my idea for how we get out of this mess. And here's my individual, you know, two pence worth of what my plan is. Right. So it's not a vote on the deal, uh, like an accept or reject vote. It's a vote on all these various different ideas. And that the reality is, is that 
Most of them, as I say, highly unlikely to pass. So Theresa May knows that she's relatively safe. What she's really doing behind the scenes in government is trying to prepare for an actual second vote on the deal by getting something on the backstop. Now, a little bit later this afternoon, in fact, in about 15 minutes, Jacob Rees-Mogg is going to be speaking in Westminster and he's prepared to slightly climb down in his language, I'm told by sources on the backstop, and say that we're seeing more realism from the government on this. Now, whether that is actually true or whether that is another charade and actually Brexit rebels are trying to lull the government into thinking that they're coming round, mm. but in reality they're not. That's something that's been put to me as well by ERG sources this morning. OK, fascinating stuff. Ross Kempsell reporting in there from Westminster, uh, having watched Prime Minister's questions. Uh, Theresa May saying her deal is an ambitious trade deal for the future. Uh, well, we'll be the judge of that, I suppose. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.